Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1184. Recorded Friday, August 21st, 2015. Hey, guess what? This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here for another Geek Out, going back to Mars. <sighs> well, we've never been, so we the first time. We did a show on Mars missions. Did a, we've done a couple around it, and I think we're going to do a couple more. But yeah, I mean, I did the one just on the existing Mars missions up to Curiosity, which was good fun. Unmanned, of course. Yeah, all unmanned and, and all the variations that we did around that. And then we did when we did the one on asteroid mining, we ended up talking about Mars. Right. Just in the context, and I, th- and I think it's an important context that we'll probably get to again, of improving mankind's infrastructure in space. Very cool. Which I think is a, it's a much harder concept to contend with than like, let's just go to Mars. All right. Well, before we get into that, I got a better no framework for you. Awesome. So roll the music. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? I want you to go to tinyurl.com slash bottle message, but that's bottle MSG, not MSG like, you know, what you put on Chinese food. Yep. Uh, bottle message. Wow. The oldest message in a bottle found more than 108 years on. That's so cool. Isn't it? So this message in a bottle washed up more than 108 years after it was thrown into the sea. And it might be the world's oldest. So it was released in the North Sea between 1904 and 1906 and found by a woman on a beach in Amram, Germany. I guess the question is, how long was it on the beach? That's what we don't know. Right. But inside, a postcard asked to be sent to the Marine Biological Association of the UK, where the bottle was returned. And the association in Plymouth said the bottle was one of some 1,000 released as part of marine research. And guess what the reward was? What? One shilling. <laughs> I don't even think shillings exist anymore, do they? I don't think they do. <laughs> but it's, it's like a dime or a quarter, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Yeah, well, back in that those days, that was a buck or two. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. That's really, that's really cool find. So, you know, the reason I picked that is because we're thinking of venturing forth into Mars, and it's kind of like throwing a message in a bottle. And in a way, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. So there you go. I love it. Interesting story. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 908, the one we did 
a couple years back on asteroid mining right in the geek out and a lot a few comments there we went back and forth a bit one of the comments was from richard astbury oh yeah if that name sounds familiar that's the orleans guy that's right we interviewed him about yeah orleans. we talked to some time ago so richard's comment is uh, i think you mentioned that mars has no magnetic field which is correct actually it's not correct it's just as a weak field weak uh it used to have one i believe we have even evidence of that in its rocks a planetary magnetic field is generated by turbulence at the ferrous core. Mm. Mars's core is cooled and therefore unable to generate the field. But why has Mars cooled and Earth not? One theory is simple thermodynamics. Mars has a smaller diameter and therefore greater surface area in proportion to its mass. As planetary heat is lost, it by escaping into the cold vacuum of space, Mars loses heat faster than us, just as a small ice cube will melt faster in your glass of mm. bourbon. Mm-hmm. You put ice in your bourbon, gross. <laughs> I personally think that Mars is a dead planet. The radiation at the surface is severe, and it makes it completely inhospitable. I don't think you can easily change that. I'm sticking to this planet. It seems nice enough. (laughs) Yeah, and easier to fix than Mars, by the Uh, way. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, a few things we've learned since that post, which was two years ago. Yeah. um, You know, Curiosity has gotten to Mars now and shown that the radiation levels on the surface of Mars are similar to those at the space station. And the right. space station is still inside of Earth's magnetic field to some degree. It's not as strongly in the field because it's, you know, 200 miles up or so, but it is, uh, there is radiation levels there that can be managed. We've also, there's been a lot more discussion around how strong the Earth's magnetic field is. And yeah, it's that nickel core center spinning that's making, uh, the Earth field as strong as it is. One of the things that they've been talking about lately is that the moon may pay a very important role in that, that it's actually kind of a pump keeping that core spinning strongly. Yeah, right. And in fact, it, it is a dead planet now, but it may not have been. And that's that's sort of what we're trying to figure out by going there. Well, I think dead is extreme too. You know, we're finding enough, we're fi- certainly finding some evidence that there that there's stuff up there. Yeah. And, you know, not healthy and happy is another question entirely. It, it looks like it definitely had, li- Mars had liquid water on the surface. It probably had more of an atmosphere, but that atmosphere got blown away by the weaker gravity. And then that lack of atmosphere is hard on a bunch of other things and, you know, makes the planet cooler and so forth. Maybe it did cool down. There's also a theory that I've always found really interesting because Mars is a warped planet. Yeah. You know, there's the the Hellas impact basin is on one side of the planet, opposite of the Tharsis high uplands, which is where Olympus Mons, this insanely massive uh, volcano is. And so it almost looks like something really big, something moon size, as in Earth moon size, hit Mars yeah. and bent it. Well, let's give this guy a mug. Oh, yeah, Richard, thank you so much for your comment, and uh, and thanks for that great show we did on Orleans uh, a year or two ago. Yep. Uh, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of the social media that we do. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. You can comment there, and we'll send you a mug as well. So what compels the human species to want to colonize Mars? <laughs> I don't know that we have that compulsion. We know we have the compulsion to explore. Some right? of I mean, us have the compulsion to live there, Elon Musk. Well, yeah, what there's, there's one of them. What's wrong with that man? It, well, <laughs> you know, his whole conversation is very much about that's a basic milestone of 
a species mm. is to go multi-planet. Mm. It gives us some redundancy and you'll know, be able to get there. But we, you can't jump all the way to Elon. That's sort of an end game at this point. Exactly. There's been a lot of conversation about going, sending people to Mars for a long time. Okay. And you got to sort of set scale around things. All right. So, I mean, let's just do the dimensions of the Apollo project. Okay. And, and there's a, there's a very reasonable discussion going on that Apollo is what has crippled space since because we had this incredible win. You know, if you take, if you adjust the amount of money that NASA spent on Apollo, it would be about $110 billion to put 12 men on the moon. Mm-hmm. They did it. And let's be point, point blank here for political reasons. True. Right. At its peak, NASA's budget, get away from the adjusted numbers and so forth. So in 1966, NASA was 4.4% of the federal budget. Mm. By the end of That's Apollo in 72, it was down to one and a half percent. Yeah. Today it's half a percent. Right. Okay. And, and there's lots of folks calling for if we doubled that to 1%, they could be consistently working on missions to Mars. At mm. this particular moment, NASA has no initiative to go to Mars. Right. Lots of research being done, bits and pieces, but there's not a political call for a particular time to get people to Mars. Okay. Now, but the Apollo mission helps inform us in terms of what it takes to move humans a substantial distance. Now, we're only talking 385,000 kilometers, right, to get to the moon mm-hmm. uh, only. <laughs> yeah. But think about the complexity of that Saturn V rocket, okay? So this is a 10-meter diameter rocket. None, there are no 10-meter diameter rockets flying today, right? Mm. Most rockets are either um, 1.75 uh Two, two and a half or 3.75 meter diameter, right? They, they, that's as big a rocket as we need for the stuff that we're lifting these right, days. Right. We don't fly the big 10 meter rockets anymore. And it was capable of lifting about 47 metric tons to the moon. Yeah. Right. To low earth orbit, that's about 130 metric tons. This is maximum lift. Okay. Right. That's a pretty impressive. A piece of technology, especially when you think it's a 1960s technology, but in a lot of ways, much of space technology has not evolved since the 60s. There's, mm. there's only been incremental improvements here and there. Right. And then if you think of what it's going to take to go so much farther. Yeah. And I'll talk about, let's, we'll do the Mars stats in a moment. Let yeah. me, let me just run, I want to run this net Apollo line to the ground because it goes on to, there was a Mars mission planned. Mm. Really? Right? Really? But a manned Mars mission? Yeah. But when? part of, I want to talk about the, the peak of Apollo. Okay. So Apollo at its ultimate, Apollo 17, the last mission to Apollo, to, to the, to the moon, where they, the only time they flew a real scientist, Gene Cernan was an actual PhD in geology, and he, but the only, that total trip of that entire thing was 12 days. From launch to splashdown was 12 days, and of that, they spent 22 hours on the moon. Now, there wasn't just one mission, man mission to the moon. There were several, right? Yeah, there were. They in the end, there were six missions that actually succeeded. Apollo thirteen had a problem, right. which made a great movie. Movie, but yeah. and it's an important point to realize that of the, all of that effort, that represented thirteen rockets, mm. right? Lots of other testing and stuff going on, and a bunch of technology developed, but it was thirteen rockets. Okay. And in the end, less than twenty four hours spent on the surface of the moon for one mission over a course of a little less than two weeks. So just Keep that in mind as we start talking about the scope of what happens next. Okay, sure. So, who was the great the 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 gene one of the core geniuses of Apollo the Apollo missions? 
the core geniuses, not back in NASA, or are you talking yeah, astronauts? Yeah, back in NASA. I don't know. Tell me. Werner von Braun. Okay. Right? Ventura the V2, you know. Werner von Braun was the rocket guy. He was the rocket guy. Yeah. And I've I've gone to Pinamundi now and actually read a bunch of translated letters of uh, of von Braun's. And in some ways, he was... He was somewhat Doctor Strange love-like, <laughs> you know. He he was. I've read a letter of him written to the Third Reich, specifying the kind of laborers he wanted, the skill sets he wanted, and they were slaves. Oh boy, you know, like he he came with some baggage. Yeah, but in. 1948, so it's after the war, he's in America, you know, he was part of Operation Paperclip where they pulled all those, about a hundred scientists and a bunch of V2 rockets and so forth, Mm. and they went to uh, the US and and immediately launched into the space race with the Russians, who got their own set of Germans, Mm -hmm. um, and set about to ultimately culminate in what became Apollo, that that race of the moon. Mm -hmm. But von Braun wasn't done. He wrote a book called Das Mars Project. <laughs> he wrote it a little bit on the science fiction side. Uh, it actually was published in 52. And it was a specification on how to go to Mars. You said it was a little bit on the science fiction side, but was it all based on sound science? In a lot of respects, it was based on sound science. But let me give you the dimensions of his original plan. Okay. And he was working. Now, you're talking about going to Mars, right. okay? So... The distances are suddenly dramatically bigger. How far away is Earth from Mars? Yeah, many, 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 many times the moon. Right. But the other thing is the moon's always more or less the same distance from the Earth. Mars varies. Depends on where you are in your orbit, right? Yeah, that's right. And the orbits are not circular. They're elliptical. It'd have to be timed perfectly, so it'd be the closest. Right. So, it, and and it's not that simple either, because even when timed perfectly, you can't fly, you don't point your rocket at Mars and go. It won't be there when you get there, right? You have to aim for where it's going to be, given how fast you can go in the time you've got. Yeah, of course. Right? And the, what's the variation is massive. So, basically, you think, now think about Sun, Earth, No, wait Mars. a second. The variation is massive, meaning... It may be more or less in this place. They don't, I thought it worked like clockwork. It it does, except that the clock it runs in thousands of years scale. Hmm. All right? So I can't count on at the same time in a certain year, it's going to be exactly the same place. Because both orbits, both the Earth orbit and the Mars orbit are slightly elliptical, Mars more than Earth, and they they orbit in an interesting resonance where the Mars year is 687 days and the Earth year is 365 days. There's a lot of variation year to year on distances. But I thought those things were known. Wow, you've punched a hole in my ideas of astrophysicists. They are pretty known, but the range is really huge. Okay. So the closest approach... For Mars and Earth, okay, when they're on the same side of the sun, what they call opposition to the sun, so the sun's behind you and you're looking at Mars, in August of 2003 was the closest approach between Earth and Mars in thousands of years. Mars was only 56 million kilometers away. Last year, in April, the closest approach was 93 million kilometers. Okay. That's a huge difference. It's almost double. Now, what I guess what I'm getting at is, did they know that it would be that different? Oh, yes, they know. Yeah, all right. right? So they but know they, they can predict whereabout it's going to be, but what you're saying is, you know, if you're trying to land a, a, a rocket on it, you, you have to be even more precise. 
We have imagine you imagine the planning you have to do, knowing that for any given two year period, because the the cycle's roughly two years. Yeah, you variate your variations could be a lot. If you could get a, if you could have gotten your rocket off in two thousand three, you were going to travel substantially less distance than if you traveled in two thousand fourteen. Mm. Right, and not by ten percent, but like eighty percent. Wow, it's a huge amount. Okay. And, huh. he, and even at the closest approaches, we're still talking four to five minutes communication time by light speed, right? It just takes that long. So not only do you have to plan the trip, you have to plan your building and designing and all of that stuff right. in Right, so that time. you can launch on the right day yeah. to be able to get there at the right time. Wow. Right, and and it varies. If you miss that window, yeah. you need to redesign, yeah, because the distances are going to be different the you, next time around, and you'll need something different design wise, right? Probably, right. It, and this is where we get into the scope of these problems. So von Braun's original missions that he, that he was planning in the in the late forties, early fifties, and actually proposed were based on Antarctica missions, right? And the Antarctica missions were all less than a hundred years before. Now, and, tell us about the Antarctica missions. Well, the whole point with the Antarctica missions is you're going to go to a place where you have to carry everything you need, right? I okay. mean, they didn't have to carry oxygen to go to Antarctica, but all of their food, all of their supplies, any repairs they were going to need for an extended period of time, at least a year. Oh, so it was a test of uh, their endurance, more or less, and their survival. Right, and being able to think through everything that can go wrong for a year. You know, but if they just brought a genie in a bottle, then right. everything would be fine. So in his ori- in original Mars project, he was talking about 10 ships, seven passenger, three cargo, hmm. total crew of 70. Hmm. Okay? These things were big. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just uh, inconceivably vast. He was already talking about a space shuttle, about a reusable spacecraft to bring all the supplies to construct these ships. By 1956, he worked with another scientist, a guy named Willie Lay, and they scaled it down to a two-ship, 12-crew model. Now, they figured they that would get about 50 metric tons to the surface of Mars. It would be 250 days flying out. You'd spend 445 days on the surface and 268 days back. Why so long? Yeah. Because you have to wait most of the entire orbit of Mars to be back in a position to return in an efficient amount of time. So a 963-day total trip time. And remember, this is at the point where the longest time anybody spent in space was 12 days. You know, what's interesting about the Antarctic thing to me is that you might think, well, that's a little extreme weather-wise, you know, the cold and stuff. Sure. But on Mars, it's it way worse. Guessed, and we're talking eighty minus eighty Fahrenheit, minus yeah. sixty Celsius. Yeah, that's and that, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, Mar- yeah, are you think Antarctica extreme? And then you look at the situation, rash it up against, and then it, that's when it's cold. When it's hot, it's ridiculously hot. Well, it doesn't get that hot. Actually, they have enough atmosphere. It gets to decent temperatures, but you know, space is worse. But yeah. Mars is 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 got its challenges. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the bug crushing superpower that is Raygun. If you're wanting to detect and diagnose errors and crashes in your software, even find problems that you didn't know existed to improve your software, then Raygun may be perfect for you. Add a few lines of code to your application, and in minutes, you'll get real-time error reports with all the information you need to fix bugs fast. You can even hook it up to your team chat, bug tracking, and development workflow tools. Raygun covers all major 
web and mobile programming languages and platforms, including .NET, the full Xamarin stack, JavaScript, and many more. Go check out Raygun today at raygun.io and say hello for us. So the size of the system, the two, that two-ship system from DAS Project, was 3,400 metric tons yeah. in, uh, in low Earth orbit. Okay. At a time when the most we'd ever lifted was about 100 metric tons. Mm. So in his original design, he was talking about using 400 launches of a shuttle to actually bring all the supplies up to build the craft because there are 3,200 of those metric tons was just fuel. Mm. Um, it could have done it with Saturn V's. If within about 27 launches, okay. considering only 13 had ever been launched, it was still outrageous, but it was possible. And even today, you know, Von Braun's what they call Battlestar Galactica design yeah. is possible. And it sort of sets a spectrum for what it takes to get to Mars, right? You're pretty much stuck with about a three-year round trip, and you've got to think in terms of bringing supplies for three years, and that's a lot. Yeah. So, um, fast forward to a little more modern time. One of the first times they talked seriously about Mars again from after the Apollo mission and sort of the wind down and, and getting into the space shuttle and so forth is when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, so 1989, did a thing called the Space Exploration Initiative that he commissioned essentially what they call a 90-day study mm-hmm. to go to Mars. And they now redesign. Werner Braun, Braun's basic concept using all known technology, they figured they'd have to spend $450 billion over 25 years to make it work. Okay. Uh, did not survive Congress, oddly enough. Yeah. I wonder but why. it galvanized a man, a guy named Robert Zubrin. Okay. So Zubrin's a scientist working for Martin Marietta. Now, today, the Martin Marietta company is part of Lockheed Martin. Right. But at the time, it was an independent company. And he hits on a cornerstone idea, the, arguably the most important thing, which is live off the land. What can we use on Mars to make the trip more practical? Hmm. It's this idea of what they call in situ resource utilization. Right. So he's looking at the science they've gotten from the Viking missions. Right. This is 1992. It's before Curiosity and so forth. Right. And he knows that the atmosphere of Mars, while very low pressure, you know, less than 1% of the air pressure of Earth, is mostly carbon dioxide. Right. And there's a chemical process called the Sabater reaction that can turn carbon dioxide, which using just a little bit of electricity and some hydrogen, to make methane. Mm-hmm. And that in- opens up an interesting idea. So he develops this concept called Mars Direct. So... Same Saturn V class vehicles. Now, remember, this is the 1990s, so there are no 10-meter vehicles anymore. Nobody's flying anything that large. But it's like, bring back a modern version of Saturn V. He actually calls it Ares, Hmm. which later would be reused in another project name. It makes it even worse and more complicated. But think Saturn V class launch vehicle. So 130 metric tons to low Earth orbit class vehicle. Okay. You fly the Earth return vehicle first. This was what was brilliant about the Mars Direct approach. You First thing you do is you launch a vehicle that is the vehicle that will bring people home to Mars. Yes. It takes, it takes a, a half a year to get there. It lands softly on Mars. It's carrying eight tons of hydrogen and a Sabater reactor, and now it makes its methane. So the important part here is instead of having to carry the hundred tons of fuel that would take them home, they carry about eight tons of fuel. Okay. And over the next 10 months, 
It makes all the fuel it needs to fly home and enough fuel for anything else you're going to need while you're on Mars. So before your second launch, you have a fully fueled and ready to go Earth return vehicle sitting on Mars. Right. And this is what we talked about as well. In the uh, one of these geek outs, we talked about that. The the first thing you have to do is get a vehicle there yeah, for the return trip. That can bring you back. Because yeah. the, the Battlestar Galactic approach of bring everything you need all in one ship and you fly everything there and everything back is impractical. They didn't even do that in Apollo. Right. I mean, think about what they did in Apollo. Right? You take off, you, your lunar lander, everything comes in one rocket. But as soon as you get into orbit, you drop a whole bunch of it. You dock with your, uh, with your lunar module, right? Because it was storage in behind you. You fly that to the moon. Then you, your lunar lander goes down to, you know, you separate that. That goes down onto the surface of the moon. Then only half of that comes back. You leave the base behind mm. and take the ascent module up. Mm. The guys get back on the return vehicle. They drop the ascent module too and fly back with, you know, just a lot, little bit of the ship. Mm. So how do you do this sort of staged approach with these kinds of distances? And Zubrin's insight about being able to make methane just open the door to, okay, we build this return vehicle first and we fuel it in situ and then you fly the habitat unit. And that's got four astronauts on it. He talked about using a tether system with a spent booster to create gravity because you've got this long flight and people are going to need gravity to be healthy. There's lots of problems with that. We can dig into that a little later on. So basically you're talking about, I mean, there's a little nitrogen, 2% or almost 3% in the atmosphere, but but you're basically talking solar energy to provide electricity to get the methane from the carbon dioxide. And you said there was another element in there too as well. So carbon, uh, methane is carbon and hydrogen. Oh, hydrogen, right. right. CH4. So you have to bring the hydrogen with you. There's all, you know, there's discussions now because we're finding more water ice than we thought on Mars. We could actually crack the hydrogen from the water on Mars. Right. But at the time in the 90s, we didn't have that information. So he's like, bring eight tons of hydrogen. Yeah. And then make it into methane. Right. So now with the polar ice caps and things like that, we actually could get the hydrogen from the water. Well, in the, in the ice caps on Mars, they think are mostly carbon dioxide, but they're finding ice, right. evidence of ice in the soils themselves, and right. it could melt it out. Right, right. But you know, the, this whole this Mars Direct was really well supported because now you fly in with a hab, you spend your year on Mars. And then you fly back with a return ship. You could have launched, and he, he was big on you just keep doing this, right? So when you fly the Hab out, you fly the next return ship All as right. well. Hab, and it, Hab, HUD, you've been reading Martian, haven't you? Well, so Hab <laughs> being a habitat unit, right? Right. So you've got your return vehicle and you've got your habitat unit. Yeah. And you're just, you're launching them in pairs, right? Where the return vehicle that you're launching with that habitat unit is for the next Hab coming. Right. And so just keep that every uh, oscillation, every couple of years, you've got another crew, a crew comes home and a crew goes out over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. New ships, that you notice no reuse of ships. It's reuse ships every time. But it was a it was an Apollo class budget that could have worked. Mm. And this is 92. Yeah. Okay. Right? By 96, he publishes the book Case for Mars. Okay. So he pitched it. NASA wasn't biting, you know, not much happened. But the thing that's interesting about what happened then is there was a whole bunch of scientists that were really interested in, in making Mars work. They called it the Mars Underground and eventually spun up into this thing called the Mars Society in 1998, which successfully raised some money and started 
testing stuff, experimenting with stuff. They set up expeditions in the Australian outback and in the Utah desert, even up in the Canadian Arctic, Hmm. that have Mars-like conditions Mm -hmm. just to see if you could make a habitat work and can you manage the, the dust and a bunch of details that are important to thinking in terms of humans functioning on Mars. Right. Right. It's it's powerful stuff and uh, and definitely, you know, is ongoing to this day. That they, that that Zubrin's efforts really rallied the first consistent intelligent efforts independent of any government around putting people on Mars. You mentioned dust. There's a uh, routinely dust storms of epic proportion on Mars. Uh is there anything even remotely that big on Earth? Um, well, so the dust storm on Mars is an interesting problem because while the wind velocities are high, the mass is low, right? There's a lot less atmosphere to move around. Yeah. So there's a question about how much... Well, it, there have been dust storms that have covered all of Mars to the point where we couldn't see the surface of Mars at all. Right, months. Uh, yeah, months. For, ran for a year. Yeah. Um, and that's a big deal when you think about terms like solar panels. That's bad news. But it's not enough mass that it would be hurricane-like. The velocities may be really, really high, but there's just not enough atmosphere. I've even heard of snow. I mean, carbon dioxide. Yeah. Frozen carbon dioxide snow, but in the small, very small, uh, very small snowflakes. But still, you've got it. And when cold enough that you're actually, that carbon dioxide is condensing out of the air. Now, have you read The Martian? I have. I love that book. Isn't that a wonderful book? It's a wonderful book. And, uh, and I reread it. I, I saw an interview with the author, Andy Weir, and Adam Savage from The Mythbusters. Great. It's on the YouTube. I'll provide a link. Okay. You gotta watch it. First off, they're both geeking out about talking to the other guy. Yeah. I, yeah. Right? I, it's like, great. It's a love fest, which is very funny. For those who haven't read it, The Martian is sort of like Robinson Crusoe in space. And that's a really good way to to talk about it. I mean, the guy is basically talking in the first person about what he's doing and and the challenges that he has. And we've talked about it before on the show. It's it's possible, you know, and it's based on real science, so everything is possible but not very probable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and what's interesting, what you get from that story of watching Adam and, and Andy talk is how Andy actually wrote the book, which is that he wrote it as a series of blog posts. Very cool. Originally written as a diary of a man stranded on Mars. Right. And it evolved into a book later and now into a movie. I've been trying to hold off doing this show until we got to October when the movie came out. Yeah. I just couldn't wait anymore. <laughs> there's so much good information out here and, and there's a lot, they're talking about the movie all the time. I'm, I'll be there for the premiere. I'll definitely see it. Yeah. And I, and in, and the interview was so good. I went back and read the book again and enjoyed it even more the second time. And I don't normally do that sort yep. of thing. Really is a great book. Well, Richard, guess what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yep, it's time to resign my explorative ambitions to finding a bottle of Shackleton whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, you can buy Shackleton. I now, know, right? but it's pretty expensive. I yeah, mean, you know, I think they, they say that the Glenlivet Nadura is the same taste. Okay. It's just a very basic, you know, none of the fancy stuff done to it whiskey. So that's why you like Nadura. It's not necessarily it's good scotch. It's historically accurate. It's historically, yeah, it's very vintage scotch. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Sean Brandt. Congratulations, Sean. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes, golf clap for you, sir. And uh, Sean just won the D Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give a $5,000 shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. Is there anything uh, geeky toy-wise that you've got your sights set on that's in the $5,000 range? No, nothing that expensive. I, I am looking at, you know, I've been playing a lot of Kerbal, so talking about space makes me really happy. Yeah. Uh, and I played on that 34-inch curved display, the big panoramic 3440 by 1440 display. Do you have to know anything about space travel or astrophysics or astronomy to play that game? No. Really? But you will pretty quickly on. You will learn. It'll teach you. Wow. And it'll make, it'll just remind you of all the little details, like little mistakes you can make. Uh, every one of those things. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm now at the point in Kerbal where I am flying to other planets, including in, in Kerbal's called Duna, which is the equivalent of Mars. Okay. And, uh, yeah, got us, got a station there and, uh, didn't install the batteries properly, didn't have enough power. Ah. Uh, so I, I've got it in, I put it sort of, put it in a dormant orbit. I was able to get it there while it had enough light to function. But as soon as it went to the dark side of the, of the moon, it didn't work properly anymore. So I've got a rescue mission on its way there to repair it. Like that's <laughs> part of the fun of that game. That is fun. The way I've described it is gardening. Yeah. I right. have this garden. It's a space program. That's funny. Right. You have to tend uh, it. And apparently it's coming out for the Xbox One. Wow. Good that. So good stuff. You can play it on your big screen. All right, let's jump back into this because I want to introduce a word that you know well and it'll get you very excited. Okay. SpaceX. Yes, SpaceX is a wonderful company. We've been there. Yes, we have. Tour. So um, when SpaceX sort of came on the scene, Zubrin updated a case for Mars and he came up with a variation of Mars Direct. So Mars Direct depended on a Saturn V class rocket. Mm -hmm. And when SpaceX spec'd out the Falcon Heavy, he started looking at, could you make a Mars mission around the Falcon Heavy? Now, the Saturn V rocket is 130 metric tons to low Earth orbit, right? Right. 10, 10 meter diameter rocket, big, 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 big. Um, and the Falcon Heavy is still a, a 3.66 diameter rocket, although three of them strapped together. And it'll lift 53 metric tons into low Earth orbit. And these are our, our preliminary figures. They haven't flown it yet. It's supposed to fly like in the next year or so. But at this particular moment, it hasn't flown. Okay. Another important rocket in this equation that also hasn't flown is the Space Launch System. Okay. So this is NASA's technology. The initial version of the Space Launch System, which is going to use some old shuttle technology, like the RS-25, the, the Space Shuttle main engine, and... Um, extended solid rocket boosters. The initial model will be 70 metric tons, 
which will make it one of the heaviest lift rockets in existence at that time. They're going to be an uprated version at some point that would be back to Saturn V caliber, 130 metric tons, hmm. and possibly more. They're thinking even 150. But it's interesting to think we're still talking about building rockets that would be as powerful as Saturn V. Saturn V was so far ahead of its time, in some ways, it spoiled people for space. Yeah. They had this amazing rocket very early on for all of its problems, and it just hasn't been matched. They're only talking about trying to get back to it now. But back to how do you do Zubrin space Mars missions with a Falcon Heavy? Okay. Okay, it's because only 53 metric tons, so you're less than half the lift of a Saturn V. Yeah. He came up with a model that uses three Falcon Heavy launches. There's a few, obviously, bits that need to be figured out. But what he do is he take a modified version of the Dragon capsule, the manned one that still is in testing, cut the crew only to two. Uh, he suggests using an inflatable expansion part of it. So put a panel in it somewhere so they can give them a little more room because mm-hmm. they're going to fly for months in that thing. Yep. The first launch puts an Earth return vehicle to Mars, but not on the surface, in orbit. So your huh. first launch is actually uh, the vehicle that will fly you home. Okay. Second launch is just the ascent vehicle. So this is the vehicle that goes down, but it only has enough power to get you back to orbit to meet the return vehicle. So it's a three-launch model instead of a two-launch model. The important part in his design then, again, is still the methane liquid oxygen engine design, right? Because uh, we we need to, you want to use as much indigenous fuel as you possibly can, Absolutely. although the Earth return vehicle uh, would already be fueled. Yeah. Then your third vehicle is actually the crewed vehicle, lands on the surface near the ascent vehicle. They do their year on Mars. They lift off. Back they go. Okay. It's a two-person mission at that point, which is, means if anything goes wrong, you're in big trouble. Like, it's a very vulnerable mission. But I appreciate Zubrin's thinking around this because it's a rocket that's likely to exist. I mean, I'm pretty confident that Heavy's going to do what it's going to do. Okay. So that's one thing. But that's not the only thing that SpaceX, you need to talk about. All right. What are we talking about? So it seems like Elon Musk is sort of doing everything at SpaceX with the idea that eventually one day he'll go to Mars. Right. And 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 in some ways he's kept a lot of what people might say is crazy talk less visible. Yeah. Most people only know SpaceX for the Falcon rockets, mm-hmm. right? For the they they've cut the price of space in half. Right. Right? Not a small cut they've literally cut it in half and people are very upset yeah right you know the united launch alliance which is the only space launch company in the u.s has been doing things as per normal uh buying russian engines and flying atlas 5 and delta 4 for the past few years because they had a monopoly they did not need to be efficient they had these cost plus contracts which means their costs are always paid and then if they're on time, they get a bonus. So they had no incentive to get more cost efficient. And along comes SpaceX and literally half the price. Like, it's amazing how much cheaper they've done things with SpaceX. But you go back to Elon's original plan. When he comes out of PayPal with his, with his $120 million, $150 million, how much money he made on it, he already had Mars on the mind. Right back in 2001, his first idea was a thing called Mars Oasis, which I still think is genius. Yeah, okay. Oasis. Fly a small greenhouse to Mars. 
Use mm. Martian soil and just grow a plant. The goal is to get this photo of a green plant mm. growing on Mars in a little greenhouse. Mm. Just because he, he, in his mind, that would inspire people. That would be a symbol of life. Stuff can live on Mars. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know that he's focused on that so much anymore, but it's such a brilliant idea. What he has said publicly, flatly, is that his goal and this is the and this is the scale that he's thinking in is a million immigrants to Mars. Yeah. And and the reason for that number is that in his mind it'll take a million people living in a colony to make that colony self-sustaining. That for whatever reason if the rockets stop flying to Mars, they'll continue to survive. And he wants to get the price for a ride to Mars one way down to $500,000. Right. Okay, so it's enough okay. that you would sell everything you own. It's, you know, it would be a big deal, but you could go. There are already people who have signed up for that stuff. And I don't well, know about- Well, that's Mars One, Yeah, that's right? Mars One. But there are people who have signed up. So the clearly, there's no shortage of nutcases who yeah. are ready to jump no, on a rocket. Nobody, Mar- nobody who signed up for Mars One has produced a half a million dollars. Oh, that's true, too. Right. And and it, near as we can tell, Mars One is not going anywhere. It's a yeah. big dream. I'm I'm going to think it had good intent, but well, it's some would not say money. Elon's dreaming too. But you know, it's it's just because of where we are in time. That's all. Sure, but Elon's also doing. So he has a he has a concept he calls the Mars Colonial Transporter. All right, again, doesn't talk about this very often. Okay, but the specs on it that have been made available. It's a 10-meter hull. So back to the size of the Saturn V, back to building. What if we start building 10-meter hull vehicles again? And he thinks you could put 100 people per flight, maybe more. Okay? Because just the size of this thing. Okay. And his cornerstone engine is this thing called Raptor. Now, he's actually worked on Raptor. They, they originally was for an upper stage engine. Today, Raptor is, an, is a larger version of Merlin. But it's a methane oxygen engine as opposed to Merlin, which is a kerosene oxygen engine. Yeah. And it would be about six times more powerful than Merlin. It would actually be in the same class of engine as a space shuttle main engine, which is good because, again, he's not talking unobtainium. Right. He's talking a normal, a, a normal size, granted largest ever, largest, but, you know, big hull, but not unprecedented size hull. Yeah. And not unprecedented engines. And using the same engine configuration as uh, Falcon, the nine engines with the eight around the rim and one in the center, he figures he could build a ship that would fly in terms of 100 plus metric tons of cargo to Mars, which is just so much bigger than anything else has done. The hmm. problem is that if you did it in the way that has been done so far, so everything used once, you'd be talking about $5 billion a flight. Wow. Or $50 million per person, which is 100 times more expensive than the goal. Jeez. Right? It's just too much. You know, it's, yeah. it's un, but it's, it, it's the same issue as what if you could only use a 747 once, right? Mm. If we flew it once with 300 people on it, it's a $300 million aircraft, mm. so it would be a million a person one way, mm. which, which would mean... Extremely wealthy people would have it. A few governments and militaries would have it, and that's about it, mm. which is about where the space program is right now. Yeah, but the difference is once they get there, they'd have to live. Well, that's a whole other set of issues, <laughs> and let's we'll get into that in a sec. <laughs> okay. But thinking, Details, you know, details, Franklin. <laughs> but if you look at what he's doing with the Falcon, he's trying to make it reusable. Right. Because the way you make that 
ship costs a hundred times less is to be able to reuse it. When you start being able to reuse ships, A, you can make them more expensive. You know, he's doing his best to hold the price down at five billion a flight. But if he can reuse it, say, 20 times, seven billion a flight's not that bad. Yeah. And maybe it's more reusable. Now it can last a hundred flights. Huh. And once you get into those long lived ships and reusable ships, costs get a lot more feasible. And they, and give him credit. He's actually working on the problem. Yeah. He's done it on a small scale. And, but you know, we've seen what happens when you try to make reusable ships, uh, space shuttle. You know, yeah, in terms of ballooning costs and everything, but there were other reasons why those costs got out of control. Sure, there's a lot, lot, lots of issues around the shuttle, and I've bashed the shuttle enough. You can go back and listen to that show. Yeah. I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. But let's get back to, you know, the first missions we should really do, and there's a lot of conversation about this right now, is to actually start doing manned flights outside of Earth's gravity. So. What about doing fly? The first time humans go near Mars is probably just a flyby. Yeah. Because stopping and landing is hard. Yeah. Right? Actually using that, say, Aldrin Cycler orbit, yep. where once we got it up to speed, it would literally fly past Mars and then come back Slingshot. on its own, no further input. That's a pretty good test. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of things we could do there. In fact, there, you get into some of the more gravitational clever stuff. They could launch one mission based on the timing, that we do a flyby of Earth, flyby of Venus, flyby of Mars, and back again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And think about the the experience that would be worth, collecting local data, you know, having basically scientists nearby. Because up till now, all of the missions that we've done out in the solar system have just kept going. Yeah, we generally only do flybys, except in the case where we've landed on Mars. Right. And, uh, you know, Cassini around Saturn, Galileo around Jupiter. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had a few. But Cassini and Galileo didn't come back, did they? They did not come back. Yeah. They, but they were, you know, so three classes of mission. Flyby, where you just bomb past, right? Mm -hmm. Think New Horizons for Pluto. Right. Which is going so fast, there's no way to stop yeah. it. Then you've got uh, goes into orbit. Yeah. Right? So that's Cassini orbiting around Saturn. And then you've got landers. So Curiosity. In the case of Cassini, it did actually drop a lander down onto Titan. Yeah. Uh, the Huygens the probe. Yeah. You know. But nobody's come back. The only thing we've ever come back from is the moon. Right. And, um, we've never done a return mission from Mars. There's lots of conversations about just building a robot that would load some rocks from Mars and fly it back. Yeah, right. You know, that that would be a good test, too, a little bit smaller, right? You don't have to build something big enough and also deal with all the challenges of keeping humans alive. We can tell Curiosity to just start stacking them up now. Yeah. <laughs> so... Actually keeping human alive that long. Let's talk about the radiation problem. Yeah, the radiation problem of getting their radiation and then being their radiation. Yeah. Well, and this is, we talked about this uh, in the Curiosity show at, back in Mars, where the radi they, they were smart. They put on a radiation sensor on Curiosity to measure the radiation on Mars and then wisely turned it on during the flight. So they found out what they needed to know on Mars, which is the radiation levels, roughly 0.67 millisieverts per year. Mm. Uh, which is about the same dosage as, as space station. Mm. And it's one of the reasons they keep space station missions down to six months mm. is be, you know, the combination of being in microgravity does a lot of damage to the body. Yeah. And the radiation dosage is not trivial. Right. Right. You do, you know, you do want to get out of it at some point. Now, as I'm saying that here in 2015, um, astronaut Kelly is on a year long mission on, on the space station. Right. So they are testing longer duration. They think they understand more about it. Mm. But I'm also reading about 
Commander Hadfield's experience, my my famous Canadian oh. uh, astronaut, who talked about after six months on the station, spending months nauseated from losing his balance, and and trying to rebuild his bones and his vision and so forth, yeah. like recovering from extended microgravity is not a trivial thing. Sure. I think we really we have to consider the idea if it takes you months to recover from six months in microgravity, you're gonna have to do that on Mars. Mm. Right, you're going to get to Mars where you're only running at one third gravity, and then try and recover because you've just been in microgravity. And for, it, and Mars for six is months. still sort of microgravity. Well, it's only one third. Yeah. So, but it's at least enough. How how is your body going to adapt to that? Right. Uh, but the it was the radiation levels in transit, the 1.8 microsieverts, and the way. NASA described it was in a 500 day trip, you'd be taking on almost a siever to dosage, which puts up a, which normal measurement says about a 5% increase of a fatal cancer. <laughs> they talked about in a crew of six, one of them would have significant radiation injuries just by probability. Wow. Now, Zubrin's come out fairly firmly against this saying, look, we can, we can deal with this dosage. The, the, the NASA's got unreasonable requirements around radiation protection one way or the other. That it's, it's sort of an overstated risk that there are more things we can do to protect ourselves against radiation without a lot of technology. Right. It's not enough to stop the flight. Okay. And then Zubrin's motivated. Yeah. And it does open a conversation, and we went there, about what about active radiation protection? So basically putting a magnetic field around the ship strong enough to actually deflect. Right. Some of at least some of the radiation levels. One of the, the but the big issue that came out of the curiosity experiment was up until then, the belief had been that the primary radiation source would be the sun. And because we have space weather monitoring, we would know when it was coming. We could see when there was large coronal mass ejection, so forth, high energy events headed in the direction of the ship. We could warn the crew and they could go into a radiation safe zone, someplace surrounded by water or you know, armor, something that was maybe confining, but at least it would be protected from radiation. And what was shown... Gamma rays, right? It was high energy particles from other sources. Yeah. Right? And very, very high energy. Interstellar high energy particles. And that's a problem because you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know when they're coming. We don't know that we could stop them. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things I'm just reading on, which will probably be in subsequent shows, is when that kind of high energy... You know, we were talked about, hey, let's use nickel iron as a hull. It'll be stronger protection and so forth. But it... It also has a side effect of when a high-energy gamma ray particle hits a heavier atom like iron, it generates X-rays. Nice. You turn one form of dangerous radiation into a larger form of <laughs> dangerous radiation. So how do we deal with that? Yeah, it's easy in the studio. You know, I can just put up some fiberglass, and that soaks up the sound waves, no problem. But radiation waves that are gamma a rays trickier. are a little trickier. And then you need to fly it around too, right? Yeah. Like it's not just sitting still. So the radiation, significant issues. Uh, we're going to have to limit our time on the surface. We're going to want to put our habitats uh, underground or partially bury them, create, you know, put some soil on top to increase their protection levels. Got to bury them Or we're going to have to come up with active protection. And as soon as you talk about active protection, you talk about needing lots of energy. Yep. And that's expensive. The, you know, solar cells aren't heavy, but the batteries are. And, and it's nighttime sometimes on Mars. The other thing that's interesting, just to think in terms of, is we don't know how to land a lot of mass on Mars. Mm -hmm. You know, the Curiosity rover is the heaviest thing we've ever put down on Mars. It was one metric ton. And Pathfinder and Sojourner, those are the ones that they put in the balloon and they bounced big time. Yeah, Pathfinder was the base station. Sojourner was the little rover. And this is a long time ago. Yeah, but they were small and they bounced quite high. 
They bounce repeatedly, yeah. but they were small enough to be able to function uh, that way and, and survive. And it solved a big problem. It's also not very precise to mm. be bouncing across the surface in a balloon. Yeah, not a good so idea. You don't want to put people through that. No. Now, with Curiosity, we're now talking something the size of a car, a metric ton, right? Yeah. 1,000 kilograms, mm. you know, 2,200 pounds. That was let down with a sky crane. That's right. Yeah. So now, now you've got... Aeroshell decelerates, high velocity parachutes to decelerate some more, finally gets to a certain speed. They drop the, the, and they've got video of all this. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, drop the lower air shell. The rockets fire up, but you don't want to carry the rockets around on the rover because they're heavy. So the sky crane approach puts the rockets on a separate device with a crane, cranks the rover down on cables. Once the rover hits the ground, releases the cables, the sky crane flies away and crashes. So let me. Let me see if I got this problem wrapped in my mind here. So on Earth, when the space shuttle or any other rocket re-enters the atmosphere, the atmosphere is thick and slows it down, and there's a lot of resistance, right? Yep. There's a lot of resistance that slows it down. It gets the opportunity to slow down to a speed that it can actually land with wheels. Right. On Mars, not so much atmosphere. You're not going to slow down. Mars has the worst-case scenario. Enough atmosphere that you can't use no atmosphere approaches, hmm. but not enough atmosphere that you could really use it in a useful way. Right. So you get into orbit, you start spinning around, there's nothing slowing you down except for your engines. Oh, yeah. it'll eventually, if there was no atmosphere at all, you could just use your engines all the way down. Yeah. And there's a bunch of tricks you can do that. You can land quite slowly. Yeah. You know, but there's enough atmosphere that engines are going to be interfered with because there's enough atmosphere there, but not enough that it's easy to break on. Yeah, yeah. So... You're limited into how much you can land. Now, NASA's working on this problem right now. Of course. There's a thing called the supersonic inflatable demonstrator where they are working on building something small enough that you can reasonably fly it, but then it inflates itself to get larger to actually decelerate. They figure this design could get them up to maybe five metric tons on the surface. But when you're talking about landing humans and landing their halves, you need... You're talking about 15 to 20, maybe 50 metric tons you've got to get on the surface. And we just don't have a mechanism that's efficient for landing yeah. that way. Right. Right. And, or you get into this crazy game of we have to carry bigger rockets with more fuel, which makes everything heavier and on and on and on. So, you know, there's lots of research to be done on just what it takes to actually re-enter that way. You can't go slow enough on parachutes. Mm -hmm. But even once you get down there, all right. In the, in the Martian, and I don't want to give away too much of the story, please read it, they use lots of solar panels, but there's dust, so they need to be cleaned regularly, and we've never built good robots to actually do that. You're going to have to actually do that. You're going to need food. Now, if you carry all your food with you, okay, that's a set time limit and so on, and that's also a part of the Martian. But what if you start growing your own food, building like, like Elon wanted to, build your greenhouses? Yeah. Now, you can get oxygen from the atmosphere because you've got lots of carbon dioxide, so you'll be able to produce your own oxygen. Uh, and the carbon dioxide is good for plants as well. You're going to need nitrogen, and there's not a lot of nitrogen, but there is some. Funny thing is, once you're actually pumping enough nitrogen and carbon into a greenhouse to keep the plants healthy, mm -hmm. they're going to produce too much oxygen. Yeah. And you've got to put that oxygen somewhere. Too much oxygen on Mars. That sounds kind of odd. Too much oxygen in your greenhouse. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, and your plants will grow slower, and it'll be a very dangerous environment to be in. How do you get the excess oxygen out? Yeah, you suck it out. <laughs> well, store it's mixed it somewhere. In, it's mixed in with everything else, yeah, right? Yeah. So there actually needs to be a complete technology developed to separate out oxygen from a mixed gaseous environment. Mm. The logical thing to do would be to freeze it. 
Because hmm. if you cool down that air, which is going to be a nitrox mix. Which won't be good it, for the plants. No. So you're going to have to pump it out. You're going to put it into a machine. That machine's going to cool it down. Oxygen liquefies before nitrogen. Okay. So you, you could separate that All one. Right. Which is a solution, except that it takes a lot of energy. Yeah, it does. And it's hard to do with solar panels. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're underestimating the all of the problems around uh, these cryogenic fuels. Yeah. You know, every engine design we've talked about so far, all of the rockets that we're flying in, in all of this, they use liquid oxygen. Yeah. Well, most liquid oxygen rockets are empty within a couple of hours, mostly in a couple of, in a few minutes mm. from when you started them. Right. Now you're going to take, carry liquid oxygen, or in the case of Zubrin's design, you're going to carry liquid hydrogen, which is even harder to keep cold, for a year. How are you going to keep it cold? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you have to haul all that refrigeration equipment with you, and it takes a lot of energy. Well, it is cold on Mars. Not cold enough. Really? Yeah. You, oxygen only stays liquid at 90 degrees Kelvin. Wait a minute. That is really, really cold. What is that Celsius? Uh, negative 200 something. Oh, wow. Really cold. Really cold. And that's a problem. <laughs> right? There's nothing but problems oh, no, it's neg- negative 150. It's still that's too still cold. still too cold, yeah. So one of the problems that that every spacecraft today has, like most of, like when you're talking about first stages with using uh, cryogenics, they're empty in a few minutes, doesn't matter. Yeah. But it's those upper stages, the boost stages and things, they deal with a thing in space called boil off. Right, that they're losing fuel all of the time. They have a limited amount of time to use it. And now you got to store it for a year. Wow, yeah, and that's really hard to do. So we get back to, and this is where I think there's another show here, maybe several shows, other technologies. Okay, the the Vasimir guys, and I've mentioned them before. They're looking more and more crack potty to me every day. Mm. But these, this is that uh, high energy uh, electric engine. They put out a paper called Mars in 39 Days using their best engine, one that's never actually flown. They could get, they could get, uh, humans to Mars in 39 days if they would just finance their big engine. They, one of the requirements, 200 megawatt nuclear reactor. Yikes. Right. Megawatts, 200,000 kilowatts. That's a big one. Yeah. Remember that the space station with its gigantic solar panels produces a hundred kilowatts. Right. So. We don't have nuclear power plants that can run in space anywhere near that size. The largest one ever made and experimented with, the SAFE 400, was only 100 kilowatts of electricity. So, you know, we, we're missing a lot of tech to start thinking realistically in the scale that has to make this all work. Uh, unless we go gigantic and short duration, right? Very short time spans for this stuff to actually run. We're nowhere yet. Yeah, and after an hour, we're nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> after an hour, we're back to this is hard. <laughs> yeah, what else? And and what should we be working on? And NASA, while having no specific initiative to go to Mars right now, I've sort of been looking at all the different projects they're working on. I think there's sort of the part of that Mars Underground. You know, the asteroid redirect vehicle. I've heard of it. They do have a they do have budget for right now, yeah. which is them the the idea of them capturing an asteroid, putting it in the moon orbit. Yeah. A lot of that technology would be useful to Mars. They're working really hard on uh, solar electric propulsion systems. Mm-hmm. See, every rocket we've talked about going to Mars so far, still a chemical rocket. Right. Whether it's using methane or liquid hydrogen or, or kerosene, all chemical rockets. But 
NASA has budget and is putting time into building a solar electric propulsion system. So using electricity to create ion engines and uh, other field effect engines to create acceleration in different ways. And in fact, in the Martian, that spacecraft that they flew to Mars used this kind of solar electric propulsion. There's another thing that we haven't talked about that we have on the show before, but um, and that is moon-based manufacturing. Yeah, I think that's a whole show unto itself and part of this larger story of if you wanted it before you do anything, if you wanted to actually build a set of blueprints of what does it take to be a space faring race? Right. And it's things like being able to manufacture out of the atmosphere, being able to mine, being able to refine and being able to actually build. And there's lots of those bits being worked on. Because it takes a lot less energy to lift off from the moon than it does from the Earth. Lots, 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 lots less. And no atmosphere, yeah. so a whole bunch of complexity goes away. But uh, maybe we'll save that for another show. That's a good one. Good place to leave it, Richard. I like that a lot. I do, too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...